Today's Dead Idea? Well, this is the conclusion of our series on Byzantine court eunuchs, and we have got something very special for you today, folks. The host of the History of Byzantium podcast, Robin Pearson, is here to talk with us today about the Varangian Guard, the Byzantine Emperor's elite bodyguards composed entirely of Vikings, or at first at least, we'll get into that. And we're going to be exploring the connections between why both these Vikings and eunuchs were entrusted with such important positions in Byzantium. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westoff, my lovely wife. This morning, she tossed back her long Viking braids, hefted her mighty Dane axe over her shoulder, and said, Well, I'm off to Miklagard to make my fortune. I'll send you a postcard. <laughs> Miklagard is what the Vikings called Byzantium, or Constantinople, and many just like her sought wealth and renown in the Queen of Cities, leading to the bizarre scene of beardless Byzantine court eunuchs standing next to thick-bearded, axe-wielding Vikings. It's a cultural juxtaposition so weird it seems like it could only happen in comic books, but it was the real thing, and surprisingly, eunuchs and Vikings were employed for much the same reasons. To help us sort this out, we have a very special guest today, the host of the podcast History of Byzantium, which I used as part of my research for this series, by the way. Very glad to have on the show, Robin Pearson. Thanks for being on the show, Robin. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited about this. Robin Pearson is from London in the UK. He is a full-time podcaster. Kudos, by the way. Very few of us reach that level. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And listeners, you can support him by subscribing to History of Byzantium and also getting all of his for sale episodes as well. And get this, he is now starting tours of Istanbul. So if you are at all in the area or willing to make the trip, then he is your hookup. Listeners, definitely check out Robin's show, History of Byzantium. It's fantastic. Gives a solid feel for what it was like in that time and place. And I personally especially enjoyed the episode on the Nika Revolt, which Anna covered earlier in this series. It's great. Uh, there are so many great topics in the large back catalog of Robin's show, but one topic that I did not see, at least not as an episode in and of itself, is the Varangian Guard. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So, Robin, let's get to it. Okay. Yeah. So, Vikings in Byzantium. Really? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. It seems like a pastiche of culture. So weird. It's just, what is up with that? What was up with these Varangians? So the first thing I want to ask you is, who were the Varangians? And how did they end up in Byzantium? This is just weird. What do you got? Well, I should just say that I, for research, I listened to your uh, some of your back catalogue, and I was particularly interested in your uh, critique of uh, history podcasters. So, the you know <laughs> first thing straight off is is I wanted to call them Varangians, and that's not for any uh, like I know better reason. That's purely how I read it off the page. And then I thought, if I bring this up, you're going to be furious that we're talking about pronunciation <laughs> immediately. But so I think we should both stick with how we're doing it to make the point that it doesn't matter. So. <laughs> that's, okay. Yes. That's my opening. Uh, 
Salvo. Perfect. <laughs> All right. So I'll go with Varangians. You go with Varangians, and we can mutually alienate both sides of our audience. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> nice. Um, mutually assured destruction. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it, I also know you've covered the Vikings in great detail on Dead Ideas. So mm. it's good to know your audience is familiar. Uh, Varangian is the Eastern term for Viking. And these, you know, Scandinavian warrior merchants were looking for the most lucrative markets. And so that across, you know, as they travel the waterways of Eastern Europe, that takes them towards Baghdad and Constantinople. And so um, the branch who who head towards Constantinople make their way down the Dnieper River. And... Mm -hmm. You know, when they get to Constantinople, they think, right, you know, this is the place to make serious money. Um, you know, they're going to be bringing their their fur and their amber and their slaves to name, you know, some of the most lucrative items and making... And they'll soon be starring in like a Beverly Hillbillies kind of remake. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there's, there's gold in that, in that city. Um, exactly. Exactly. So they're trekking back with bags of gold coins and... It, it's a, uh, obviously a huge distance to get back to the Baltic Sea. So they start creating trading towns along the Dnieper, um, places like Smolensk and Polotsk and Kiev, which becomes kind of the capital of, of the state that forms in that area. And yeah, the, the, you know, the warrior qualities are noted by the Byzantines um, when these men arrive. And so you know, inquiries are made and, you know, it's, it's said, well, you know, if you guys fancy serving in the Byzantine army, we could certainly use your skills. And obviously they see that the pay is good. And so people start staying behind and serving on particular campaigns for the Byzantines. And, um, mm -hmm. and this, this is not really the guard yet. This is just all build up, right? Exactly. So yeah. initially I think what attracted the um, the Byzantines was the skills that Varangians had on water, you know, that they were essentially like Marines, mm. you know, their, their, mm -hmm. their lifestyle was, you know, rowing incredibly fast up to a place to take it by surprise, jumping ashore, grabbing things. And so, yeah, the, um, the Byzantine Navy started to pick them up to serve on campaigns in and around the Aegean and particularly attempting to re take Crete from the Arabs, which had caused a huge amount of problems. And so, yeah, initially, um, during the ninth century, the, these Varangians were picked up as mercenary troops. And that's how the, uh, the Byzantines started to, um, think about employing them on a longer term basis. Yeah, that's cool. I like that you, uh, pointed out specifically their, their seafaring skills, because I think our, our stereotype of a Viking is some big, hulking, huge barbarian warrior and with the main uh, virtue of him just being able to like squash you one blow. But the Vikings weren't really any better fighters than anybody else at the time, but they were more like hit and run kind of guerrilla sea pirates. And yeah. that was their real specialty, I feel like. Absolutely. And um, yeah, yeah, I think, you know, later on the, their physical size and uh, appearance definitely played a part but mm -hmm. yeah i think the the romans you know the byzantines knew that discipline was generally more important in a in a set piece battle than ferocity but mm -hmm. that people who were good on the on the sea were much rarer um mm -hmm. it, it's interesting you you know you started to set up the unusual 
appearance of the Byzantine court. And I suppose that's partly, you know, where the Byzantines have a weakness. They look to someone else to provide a strength. And um, they never, never in Roman history was the navy given a kind of um, prominence where men would think that's where I want to make my fame and fortune. And so despite having a lot of merchant sailors, the, the navy was never a powerful or prestigious place. So I think definitely the seafaring skills was what attracted them to the Varangians early on. That's a weird aspect of the Roman Empire. I don't disagree at all. It's just really strange considering that they are an entirely like sea-based empire because they're all around the Mediterranean, right? So. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Mediterranean is what makes the Roman Empire possible. But they do. Yeah. They kind of think, well, if we can just land our troops on the other side, then we can carry on having uh, land battles, and that'll <laughs> avoid us having <laughs> right. to learn these new skills. So yeah, they managed yeah. to go around and around it. Excellent. So that's that's how the Varangians ended up in Byzantium. So how did the guard get started then? So. Uh, I imagine lots of your listeners have heard of Basil II, Basil mm. the the Bulgar Slayer. He's one of the more famous Byzantine emperors, and he um, had a reputation as a as a conquering leader. But he didn't start out that way. He grew up uh, under the thumb of some very famous generals, and this is in the late 10th century. And those generals kind of ruled on his behalf while he was a child. And by the time he turned 18, uh, he was ready to rule on his own. But the the families of those famous generals said, you know, no, no, we want to continue running things for you. And so this led to a very, mm-hmm. very damaging series of civil wars. And Basil just found he couldn't trust his best troops because they'd been serving with these generals for years. And so he needed experienced soldiers from somewhere else who he could rely on and so he turned to uh, Kiev and so Kiev by now had become a state on its own no longer um, just a trading post and uh, so Basil contacted their ruler Vladimir and he wanted to get troops from him and so he made quite a momentous decision which was to offer his sister's hand in marriage and this had never been done before a, a sort of true-born Roman princess marrying a, a barbarian, as as the Byzantines would have seen it. And mm-hmm. so Vladimir agreed to convert to Christianity to make it more respectable. And he got a very good sort of PR deal from this. And in exchange, he forwarded 6,000 Varangian troops. Um, so kind of a mixture of actual Vikings from the north and locals which we'll kind of talk about in a bit, I suspect. And they arrived and they were very effective. Um, They kind of uh, immediately uh, defeated one section of a rebel army and then helped Basil defeat the next section. And he was so pleased with their work that he incorporated them kind of as a unit within the armies, but then took the cream of them and made them into his personal bodyguard. And as you hinted at in your introduction, the key for him was that they have no loyalty to anyone else. They don't know yes. the rest of the army, so they only know me and I'm paying them well. And so that's how they became the imperial bodyguard. And it it's, it stuck. You know, future emperors did not make a change for the next 200 years. And so the Varangians became a fixture at court. 
Right. So, yes. Okay. Excellent. So to drill down into that, basically, um, you've already got these Rus Vikings, mostly, that are in the army, uh, making themselves known, kind of distinguishing themselves as like seafaring fighters, etc. Right. And then Basil II comes along. He's a super suspicious type. His family has a long history of like assassinations and political intrigues and backstabbing and stuff. So he has very good reason to be paranoid about somebody taking him down. And as you mentioned, like the other generals um, who are in charge of his armies, uh, which he, you know, as emperor, should ostensibly be the one in charge of, but he's afraid of his own army, right? So who's he going to trust? The Vikings, an outsider. Yes, yeah, so exactly. That makes sense. So basically, the the big reason to bring in a foreign unit to be a bodyguard is because you can't trust your own friends. Yeah. <laughs> you can't trust your own people. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, this was something that other empires did. The Islamic Caliphate, at about the same time, started hiring Turkish steppe nomads to come down and serve okay. as you know the same thing, kind of the bulk of the army and and bodyguards. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and and in both cases, the idea is nobody's going to support these foreigners to be the new rulers. Nobody's going to say, "Oh, that Varangian captain, he's a, a you know a handsome, uh, well-spoken guy. Let's make him emperor," mm -hmm. because ultimately, sure. you know, racism is going to is going to trump that. He he <laughs> he he's not from here. He doesn't know our ways. He may not even be a Christian. So there's no way he's going to be emperor. And as mm -hmm. you say, he has no stake in society, which is such an important thing. He has no wife and family in the provinces saying, "Hey, hey, you know." I, you know, our local lord would make a great emperor. How about we uh, agitate in that direction? Um, and so, yeah. yeah, and I think um, one of the things about the guard that um, works out very well for Byzantium is that you can recruit new guards. You can say, you know, th this guy's been around for 10 yeah. years. I don't like the way he's getting friendly with people. Let's um, pat him on the back, hand him a bag of gold and say, you're out of here and recruit <laughs> a young guy who's just turned up on the docks um, because mm. then we can kind of refresh their outsiderness without, um, you know, losing the, the strength uh, and the skill they bring. Interesting. Okay, yeah, I never really quite drilled down into that nuance. That makes a lot of sense. So we're already kind of getting into the reason for employing Varangians that is also shared with uh, eunuchs. So basically what it sounds like is... The Varangians were valued and sought after because they were trustworthy precisely because they were foreigners and they had no local stake, no local support. They depended entirely on the emperor for uh, their livelihood and, and if it wasn't for the emperor, they would be adrift, right? And so they were much more likely to stay loyal that way. And interestingly, as far as my research turned up for eunuchs, that's pretty much the same reason why eunuchs uh, got started, at least in the beginning, uh, because they were mostly foreigners. In the late Roman Empire, they were entirely foreign-born, and they were despised in late Roman culture. So they, so they had no local ties either, really, because they were kind of outcasts within the society. And so, therefore, if the emperor was employing them, much like the Varangian Guard, then they were likely to be loyal to the emperor. 
over anybody else because again in the very same way it sounds like as the same way as for the Varangians the emperor is paying them well giving them the high status they wouldn't otherwise have and if they ever said see you later to the emperor they'd be screwed so does that does that kind of fit with what uh, you found for your research about the Varangians or how do, how do you see that interplay there the comparison yeah I I, I agree with you um, there there are definite similarities as you say the uh, eunuchs could be both foreign or local but gen- yeah later on they could be yeah yeah absolutely so yeah I mean it, there was always a there was always likely to be a lot of foreign eunuchs around because uh castrating (laughs) young boys was technically illegal even though it went on Mm -hmm. all the time and obviously Mm -hmm. it it wasn't encouraged in lots of circles (laughs) um (laughs) so whereas you could buy uh foreign slaves at market and well that's you know that's not my fault that someone did that um Mm -hmm. and yeah i think but what you said about being despised i think is is important there that again where sort of natural racism towards these strange northmen and their strange ways there's a there's a revulsion that goes along with with eunuchs which i think you know again that the comes from sort of not knowing what they're up to in the palace but also i think you know probably just basic gender fear of you know you don't know you don't know what they are you don't know what they want and that yeah that fear i think is makes both Varangians and eunuchs unattractive to the general population. And that's key for emperors, that they're not, you know, they're not likely to gain a following. They're not likely to be seen as a natural ally for for another constituency in the state. Mm-hmm. I think, as we're sort of hinting at, you, there's more variety in eunuchs that um, because a eunuch could be a Roman, um, this this, mm-hmm. as you're sort of hinting later on, this becomes more common that a Roman family will have five sons and in thinking, well, we'll have to divide our estate between five. That's a waste of time. Let's just castrate the younger ones and send them to work in the palace, (laughs) which obviously sounds horrific to us, um, but did often lead to, um, you know, you have a a son who's now in the palace and regardless of Mm -hmm. how high he rises, that's still a very valuable connection. And so, yeah, eunuchs sort of have more variety. The, the Varangians are very unlikely to ever gain a stake in society. If, if a Varangian stays long enough and he decides, I'm going to become a Roman, I'm going to convert, I'm going to buy a farm, well, likely he's going to be shipped out at that point. And, and he may just want to leave anyway to live on his farm. So he's not going to become a political problem. Whereas a eunuch mm-hmm. could have relatives and friends who who they can agitate for. So, yeah, and I think... Uh, again with the variety eunuchs were needed in a way that varangians weren't you know that there's always a need for loyal bodyguards but it doesn't have to be a varangian whereas men who are going to hang around your wife and children you're always going to need eunuchs that was the the byzantine logic so there's definitely definitely strong parallels between the the need for both but the varangians timing (laughs) was quite specific to this era but um, I'll say one thing in the Varangians' favor in this, because we're sort of, you know, eunuchs okay. were around longer. Obviously, eunuchs also served in other cultures and courts. But the, mm-hmm. the Varangians were not just valued because they were foreign mercenaries. 
it was also because they had a code of honor amongst themselves that made them a cohesive unit. Um, yes, thank you for saying that. Go on. <laughs> so, I mean, the the etymology of of Varangian is quite complicated, and there's sort of academic debate about it. But one common um, claim is that it meant something like companion. So mm -hmm. that a unit of Varangians meant, you know, we're off on a trade uh, mission. And obviously the, where we can't trade, we're going to raid. So um, mm -hmm. we're going to need to really trust each other. We're going to be gone from home for months, years at a time. And we need to all agree, A, that we stick together and B, that we divide up the loot fairly. Because, you know, mm -hmm. you, you might say, well, look, I, I, I play a valuable role, but if Olaf here decides to beat me up, there's nothing I can do about it. So you need to have a, mm -hmm. a strong agreement and a code of honor that we all obey. And that um, was seen as a really valuable, cohesive part of the Varangian Guard. And one Byzantine historian kind of put it in a way that's quite helpful. And the quote is, they regard loyalty to the emperors and the protection of their persons as a family tradition, a kind of sacred trust and inheritance handed down from generation to generation. And so mm. I think it's that culture that made them different to, say, you know, a bunch of, um, well, say, Turkish warriors that you get in um, who, mm -hmm. who might who've just arrived and are told, will you be the emperor's bodyguard? Well, maybe they'll be more susceptible to a bribe here or there. Whereas the Varangians came with this code of honor saying, we stick together through thick and thin, and you are now our patron. We, we're making an, uh, an oath of loyalty to you that we take seriously. And so that culture mm -hmm. uh, made them a bit different from, from other foreign mercenaries and indeed from some eunuchs who indeed might have other interests they might turn to if uh, politics worked against them. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a really key observation to make and an excellent like um, contrast in addition to our comparison with eunuchs here. And to drill down even more deeply into that uh, Viking culture predisposition to loyalty, yeah, I, I, I think there's an interesting distinction too just between the kind of societies that they're coming from, Byzantine versus Viking. Byzantines, obviously, uh, they have large cities, you know, you've got like Constantinople, you know, very like kind of like high urbanization scale of culture. The Vikings were scaling up at the time, but they were nowhere near that same level of like population and anonymity that you would have rampant in a an urbanized culture, which anonymity being something that tends to break down bonds of loyalty and trust uh, that you would otherwise maybe find in like a small town kind of ethos, right? And Vikings, although some of them might come from the bigger towns and cities in Scandinavia, um, a lot of them were just farmers, you know, and they'd be coming from that kind of like, well, in, in the case of the stateside here, just kind of like a Midwest kind of like, I'm from a corn growing town in Iowa kind of a background. Um, I don't know what the perfect analogy would be for over the UK for you, but um, I don't know, like the Midlands or some, I'm not sure. <laughs> in any case, uh, there's a very different kind of value set that naturally is conduced to by when you're, everybody around you has multiple relationships to you, right? Like you're not just my 
barber, you're also my mayor and also the person who supplies my wagon wheels. And so I'm not going to screw you over in one relationship because that'll mess up all my other relationships with you. Whereas in a large scale society like the Byzantines had, at least at least in the big cities, you could do that. You had that anonymity. And so you could be much more kind of backstabbing. And that's kind of a lot more like our cultures today <laughs> where we have large cities and stuff. And it's actually a lot like the internet and social media. You have total anonymity oftentimes, and so you can be very vitriolic. So the Vikings were coming from the opposite of that. And so they had just in in the fiber of their cultural being, this kind of natural tendency to value each other's word and to stand by their word and therefore be loyal. Does that kind of fit with what you read as well? Yeah, I, that's it. Uh... That's a very interesting perspective, and I think uh, that all adds to the sense of recruit fresh Varangians all the time, mm -hmm. keep them coming in, and keep them apart, so that that localness and the sense that they really only know each other, and therefore have you know don't know anyone else who could pay them, um, becomes stronger. And and yeah, I think I think that's an excellent point, and we we get a sense that they created a kind of barracks culture where you know new arrivals would come and see oh look at all the great names that served here um like this is a little home away from home they weren't they didn't mm. arrive and go straight into a, a roman style homestead and so yeah and so you had a kind of feedback with with people who'd made their fortune and gone home saying to you know younger relatives or whatever oh you should definitely go and um mm -hmm. so yeah maintain that that northern culture within this um, self-contained unit. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very interesting, and I think that's that's something that local-born eunuchs obviously did not have. That they that they had been they'd grown up in Roman society, and they obviously that's a great advantage in in administering and knowing how things work. But it exactly what you're saying. It gives you great opportunities for forming connections outside of the emperor's knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like you say, as the late Roman Empire transitioned into what we, his, well, what historians call the Byzantine Empire, the eunuchs did, of course, rise higher and higher in terms of social status. And that's when you started getting, you know, actual Byzantine families being like <laughs> castrating one of our sons. Sounds like a pretty good idea. Yeah. Pretty, pretty good life for them. Um, and then at that point, the whole idea that you can trust eunuchs because they have no other person to depend on but you starts to break down. And for the Varangians, I feel like that kind of got going as well the longer they stayed in Byzantium. So it's really interesting the part that you mentioned about how you would keep recruiting fresh. That That's something that I didn't um, realize myself. So yeah, that is a very interesting way to deal with the same problem from a different perspective yeah exactly and you know i think there's always going to be a certain level of adaption the the sources aren't clear how christian the god was because mm. certainly early on um there's a lot of atrocities attributed to the to the varangians and you, you get the sense that the emperors were quite quite glad to have uh, non-Christian troops, you know, people who weren't worried about their soul necessarily, and they weren't worried about, um, you know, people they knew having to be killed or or mutilated or something. And um, yeah, right, I, or even 
or even just worrying about what the Christian next to them thinks about how much of a Christian they are, which might be even more relevant. They developed a reputation for some very brutal things, and in fact, we're specifically employed to take care of a lot of the dirty work. So maybe this is a good point that we can start talking about the roles that the Varangians played in the Byzantine Empire. Absolutely. Yeah, and that, as we're kind of hinting at, they were kind of... um... The, the the guard at the capital had a lot of sort of police or even secret police work though I, I don't I don't suppose there was much secret about what they were up to but um, yeah apart from the secret part they do kind of feel like KGB to me yeah exactly <laughs> I think that's right I think um, the, there was a lot of security force work going on you know not just crowd control but also kind of informal intimidation or torture when there was serious suspicion of of treachery going on mm-hmm. the, that's kind of behind the scenes the the things we hear about in the sources are when you know so and so has to be blinded it's the varangians who are sent in to do it mm-hmm. but they sort of played a similar role on, on campaign because a lot of attention is focused on the guard which obviously is only a few hundred men who kind of live in and around the palace but there was usually a, a Varangian unit, you know, of several thousand who would go on campaign. And there mm-hmm. again, we hear of, you know, <laughs> people have taken refuge in a church and the Varangians burn it down, uh, which again, you you struggle to imagine would be an order that every soldier in that army would want to carry out. <laughs> and a certain amount of, yeah, a certain amount of marking their territory as the, the emperor's chosen troops um mm-hmm. which again kind of helps balance you know native elements of the army who might think uh have, might have ideas about replacing the emperor with their general you you're going to have to go through these thousands of loyal soldiers one thing we could do in terms of talking about Varangians on campaign is to talk about Harold Hardrada who mm-hmm. he's one of the few Varangians we know quite a lot about and he's probably the most famous mm-hmm. but his career kind of tells us the variety of things that a Varangian soldier might be asked to do. So, so I imagine most of your audience, sort of that name rings a bell. He was obviously quite famous for his part in the 1066 battles in England that led to eventually to the Norman mm-hmm. conquest. Um, but Harold was one of the sons of the King of Norway, and his father was killed in battle when he was 15. And so he fled, and by about 20, I guess, he was in Constantinople and you know, he was told, oh, there's good money to make there. So he joins the guard and he ends up fighting as a Marine, kind of trying to clear the Aegean of Arab pirates who were still operating there when he first arrived. Or, you know, they were, we would, the Byzantines thought of them as as piratical <laughs> campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. then he was sent to uh, fight in Sicily. Um, which again involved a certain amount of naval warfare, but he also fought on land both there and in southern Italy. And um, this is where you get kind of stories about him that probably aren't true, but are great stories. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think one of the famous ones, which I think may be attributed to other people, but is that um, you know these Italian towns are very hard to take because they're up in in the hills, and so it's quite hard mm-hmm. to approach them. And that Harold saw that they had a lot of thatched roofs where birds were nesting Mm -hmm. and that he caught one of these birds and attached a taper to it and set fire to it so that the bird flew, (laughs) you know, for as fast as it could back to its nest and set fire to 
the the roofs of these houses. So whether that's true or not, it's um he was certainly involved in these kind of guerrilla campaigns to get inside a town and get you know a Byzantine governor back installed. Yeah, a lot of the stories about him are just like you would expect it in a Dungeons and Dragons campaign more than yeah, like an actual military history. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and then he kind of he was back in the in the Balkans putting down a Bulgarian revolt, and he he'd served with distinction on a number of campaigns, and so he kind of. Uh, he won great favor from the emperor at the time, Michael IV. And then when Michael V took, took over, Harold was imprisoned on suspicion of treachery, uh, which is a, mm-hmm. an interesting one because obviously we think of the Varangians as, as being above suspicion, but clearly, uh, mm-hmm. you know, life happens. And um, for, fortunately for Harold, the, Michael V was eventually killed by the mob um, or rather chased down by the mob and blinded. And again, mm-hmm. it's claimed that Harold was the one who did the blinding, that he was released from prison. Again, he's he's everywhere in his own biography. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, that certainly gives you an idea that, that even a Varangian could kind of become a favorite and then become persona non grata with the next ruler. Um, you know, it's it's always dangerous to be at the top and to be mm-hmm. one of the leaders mm-hmm. of the guard. Um, but there you go. So he kind of served all over the place um, on on land and sea, and you know his fortunes uh, went up and down with with the emperor he was serving. So you could be quite a varied career as a Varangian soldier. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I like the hint at the trust that was placed in the Varangians uh, didn't always uh, work out so well, right? Yeah. <laughs> because um, one of the other bits about um, how loyalty works for the, the Viking ethos, and there was one story where it's like uh, there was somebody who snuck into the palace or something to uh, assassinate the emperor the Rangians rushed to the scene, but they got there just too late, just after the assassination was completed. And so instead of killing the assassin or like fighting to the death to attempt to do so, which they would have done had the assassination not been completed yet, instead they knelt and were like, hey, you're our new boss. We're loyal to you now. <laughs> Still super loyal, but it's just like it's to the boss, not to the person kind of, you know. Yeah. So... There yeah. are there are various stories like that where there is there is some debate amongst the guard. Do we defend to the death this loser? Basically, you know, basically this person <laughs> mm-hmm. who is clearly on the losing side of this civil conflict, or do we switch mm-hmm. allegiance to the next guy? So there is there's definitely you know as much as you are loyal and you stick to your oaths, you are not uh, suicidal. Um, mm-hmm. But generally, I don't. I can't think that there are many accounts of Varangians being directly involved in a conspiracy right. where that had been a consistent feature of earlier Roman history that captains of the Praetorian Guard were involved in you know, changing emperors. So I think right. generally they were – they had a good record of avoiding being implicated in that kind of thing. And, and I suspect if they had been, then, then the tradition would have died out uh, much quicker but yeah, obviously, if if your master is already dead, then you need to think about <laughs> whether you want to be hacked down to the last man or whether you want to uh, reassess your priorities. Yeah, because they were human after all, just like the rest of us, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So speaking of the tradition dying out, this seems like a good transition point to talk about how the Varangian Guard as a tradition 
came to its end. And we were just talking about Harold Hardrada and how he played a role in the Norman, well, the battles leading up to the Norman Conquest, which the Norman Conquest surprisingly also had a huge impact on the Varangians way down in Constantinople. So can you tell us a little bit about how the Varangian Guard changed over time and eventually kind of dwindled away? Yeah, so with the Norman takeover of England, there were many um, Anglo-Saxon warriors who had lost their lands and their and their purpose. And so the many of them came to Constantinople because they knew that here was um, here was a paymaster looking for men of their type. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, during the late 11th and 12th century, the guard became quite dominated by Anglo-Saxon and Danish warriors. And the connection you mentioned with Anglo-Saxon and Danish Viking warriors, that's significant, right? Because at that time, uh, they had the, the Dane law in England, right? So those Danish warriors were actually coming from England as well. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And again they they shared both the the fighting style and the kind of ethos the kind of what you're talking about um non-urban loyal to your kind mm-hmm. spirit that was was a key part of the varangian ethos so yeah they came to dominate after 1066 and ended up fighting the normans again in various other theaters um mm. but yeah i mean so the guard, I mean, the culture of the guard changed. We kind of talked earlier that various reports say, oh, this church was dedicated to um, northern saints or this church was handed over for Varangian use. So they may have become more Christian. It's hard to tell how deep that went. But I think I think the real change came in the in the fortunes of the Byzantines. I think the the guard would have gone on being employed in some form. But the Fourth Crusade in 1204 sacked mm-hmm. Constantinople and the Byzantines never really recovered. And they certainly never recovered a kind of central treasury from which a large mercenary contingent could be paid. So we mm-hmm. do hear of people who are described as Varangians serving all the way through from 1204 to about 1400. And so small groups may have been continued to be employed by the various successor kingdoms and then when the, the Byzantines took back Constantinople, but the you know, the tradition, the lineage had been broken and so had the treasury really that, that could afford mm. to pay them. Um because they were paid very well. They, they, they sound a bit like bankers <laughs> at times. They're highly paid <laughs> and given bonuses whenever something happens and so mm-hmm. i think once that dried up you know you've you've lost the the great um, demographic boom that led to the viking era you've lost the money to pay them it dwindled away hmm. well this has been a really interesting interesting awesome conversation thank you so much robin this is really cool and fills out so much of the the nuance of uh, you know what that was like Having these like pseudo KGB bearded Vikings running around doing the dirty work, you know, this the sense of why they were there. Pleasure to be here, and I, I think this is a, it's an excellent dead idea topic because, you know, it <laughs> it makes you look at today, you know, particularly in the West where we, to you know, to a large extent, rely on a peaceful meritocracy, 
um, to fill mm, the same yeah. roles. And so you, you go back into the past and you say, when when you could not have that, what did you do instead? And yeah, these are two interesting uh, solutions to that problem. Yeah, it makes you think about, yeah, exactly. If we lost our capital, <laughs> like what would what would the successor government look like after that? Yes. You know, who would you trust, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So before we go, um, any new projects that you are working on or anything that you'd like to plug that's something that our listeners should know about? Uh, well, I think, again, you mentioned it. Um, I'm now in a very uh, fortunate and excited position to be able to um, lead tours around Istanbul and the uh, mm-hmm. many, many Byzantine sites that are still there. If that's something that interests you, um, do visit thehistoryofbyzantium.com and have a look. I was just really um, excited when I was in Istanbul to see how much has been preserved and um, would be thrilled to show any history fans around uh, in the future. That sounds like a hell of a trip. <laughs> yeah. That sounds amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, Robin. Hey, it's absolute pleasure. Listeners, you could support Robin by checking out his show, History of Byzantium. He's got a number of special episodes, as we mentioned, for sale at historyofbyzantium.com. And just like he mentioned, plan a trip your next vacation you know where it's going to be (laughs) Uh, he does make his living by podcasting so let's show him some love folks that's it for our episode on the varangian guard and it is it for our series on byzantine court eunuchs cutting off your junk to get ahead what's up next well we are going to have a one-off episode on a dead scientific theory coming up specifically we're going to be talking about the idea of the canals of Mars. That is the idea that the planet Mars is crisscrossed with visible lines so long and straight they can only be artificial constructions, i.e. evidence of a vast and technologically superior extraterrestrial civilization. That was a thing, and that is what we're going to be talking about next. And then after that, we are going to have our final series for the show, I'm still keeping it a secret at this point, but as revealed earlier, it will be about the ancient Roman world and the most surprising and unexpected part of the ancient Roman world at that. That's your teaser, and we'll leave it there. All right, folks, I'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.